Well, glad to be here tonight. Thank you all for being here. Um, the kids have all gone back to their classes, so we'll go ahead and get started tonight. In your Bibles, we'll be in again in Colossians. Uh, we'll be finishing up chapter one tonight. If you would turn there. Um, so last week, we looked at verses 24 and 25, how Paul was commissioned by Jesus uh, to suffer while bringing a message to the Gentiles, mainly to the Gentiles. As Paul is a minister of the church, he was called to suffer affliction for the sake of the church and deliver that message, um, which we learn here uh, has been a mystery and is now revealed through his, his preaching accompanied by affliction. And of course, not only through the preaching of Paul, but all the apostles that went out bringing the message of Christ to the world. Um, and according to verses, verse 25 that we covered last week, the stewardship Paul was given to make the Word of God fully known is what he talked about. Well, how, that's how we ended it last week. He was talking about how that was his goal, was to make the Word of God fully known. And uh, that's what we'll be looking at tonight because Paul describes it in these next verses. He describes his ministry. He describes um, that stewardship and what he means by making the Word of God fully known. There's something really specific about that that he's going to talk about. And that is this, what is this next section we were looking at here is Paul's mystery message. And we'll be looking at this, uh, these last several verses in chapter 1 tonight. I might go a little bit longer than normal just, to, just so we can get done with chapter 1, um, but our Q&A times haven't been that long lately anyway, so I think I can use a little of that time. I won't go beyond the time when the kids are ready to go, though. I promise. <laughs> um, but let's read our, our passage of Scripture tonight. And I want to read that whole passage again, even, even what we did last week in chapter 1, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, through 29. We'll read that whole section, and then we'll pray. In verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present every mature, everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for um, another opportunity to come together to study your word. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us through your spirit tonight, that uh, you would illuminate your word to us, Lord. Give us understanding and wisdom. Um, Father, we want to glorify you in our, not only in our living, but in our learning, Lord, that we would learn more of you. And so we pray that you would lead in that tonight, Lord through your spirit. And we give you praise and thanks for all these things. 
And we pray for the kids as well, Lord, that they would be learning tonight about Christ as well. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so just in case somebody's here tonight that wasn't here last week, you know, that, that verse that we spent a bit of time on last week, verse 24, dealing with what Paul said about those that he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions uh, for the body of Christ, um, we clarified last week that is not saying that there is anything lacking in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. In fact, Paul is not talking about atonement when he uses those words there but more so about the suffering that Christians will endure. It's, it's a promise to Christians that they will endure suffering. And then we looked at the fact that in particular, Paul was, uh, when Christ told him he was going to be a, a tool of his to go out to the Gentiles, he was told how much he was going to suffer. And there was two, so there's two aspects of that verse there that Paul's talking about, uh, these afflictions that are lacking. It's, it's that he's not done suffering yet what Christ had said he would suffer for the church. So we, we wanted to clarify that. That is not something that is talking about the atonement that Christ achieved on the cross. There was absolutely nothing lacking in that. So we just wanted to clarify that. Um, so looking now, starting at verse 26 tonight, uh, since we finished with 25 last week, 26 says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So it kind of starts uh, partway through, <clears throat> through a sentence. So we have to look back at verse 25 to know what he's talking about. So if you go to 25 there, he's talking about this, this uh, he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for you to make the word of God fully known. And then he continues with that in verse 26. That is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is a mystery, he says, that has been, it's been hidden. Uh, for ages and generation. It's an old mystery. Uh, there are many mysteries in, it talked about in the scriptures that God reveals at different times and in different ways and to different people or groups. There are some things, though, that God doesn't reveal. Okay, the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that we don't know, some things that God doesn't reveal, but he doesn't leave out in his revelation in his word, he doesn't leave out anything that we need to know. He gives us everything that we need to know. So mysteries revealed. In the revealed word of God, there are mysteries about end times. There's mysteries about um, un the unbelief of Israel. There's mysteries about the rapture of the church, uh, about the relationship between Christ and his church as the bride, and about the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. This is a, this is a mystery. Uh, in fact, we'll be looking at that tonight. And all these mysteries are revealed only to God's people. That's, that's who these things are revealed to, meaning those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, those people can know and understand what the Scripture says regarding these mysteries. And it sounds exclusive. That, that really kind of sounds exclusive. That's because it is. Now, that's, that's what the Bible teaches, so let's look at that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. If you turn there with me in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a really interesting passage for us as believers to look at and to understand how things are spiritually discerned and by whom. Okay, it's not, not just anyone. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. 
Again, this is Paul writing. Yet among the mature, we, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, okay, those are unbelievers, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spirit, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So that, that is exclusive, right? The, the knowledge, this knowledge that we have as believers comes about by the work of the Holy Spirit, not just to anyone. God doesn't reveal these things to just anyone, but to those who possess the Spirit of God, those who are saved. And that word that Paul uses um, that is translated as mystery there in our text and in many other places of Scripture is mysterion, right? It's a hidden or secret thing. These things are not obvious to the, um, to the understanding, but must be revealed by God according to His will. Without God revealing them, they would not be known, right? We need God to reveal the truth. And Paul doesn't use this word in a way to mean that only the enlightened or special or elite members of the church get understanding open to them. That's not what he's talking about. That's more of a Gnostic idea, right? They, uh, I think Bubba talked about that on Sunday. But they, it was only the special, the initiated, the, they got the special knowledge from God, right? That is not what Paul's talking about here. Because every Christian has the knowledge, this knowledge opened up to them by the Spirit of God. He indwells every believer. He teaches us. He reveals truth to us um, because they're now, we are now filled with his Holy Spirit, just like we read about in that, in that passage in 1 Corinthians. These things are spiritually discerned, and that's how we understand them. And now that gets to the main point of the message. It, it gets to what this specific um, revealed mystery is that Paul is talking about. And he said, this is a mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, he says, now revealed to, the, to his saints. Now, meaning at the time. Now, Paul is writing this letter during that time period, during the time uh, that the Colossians were living in, from the time of Christ's incarnation, that, that whole time, and moving forward from there. It's now. It's for, for right now. To his saints, of course, clearly emphasizing that this mystery is only revealed to believers. Believers are called saints in, in the scriptures. Um, so let's move to verse 27. Now, for the, for the subject matter of the mystery, 
So, so I'll ask you, what is, according to verse 27, what is the mystery that is revealed? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right. There, there is no mystery revealed in all of the Bible that is greater than this revealed mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Nothing better than that. And we as Christians should understand that. And look at verse, what verse 27 says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who are the them referred to there? Saints. Okay, to the saints, God uh, chose to make known. And we see there that language, God chose to make known. That indicates to us that we can't come to that on our own. God chose to reveal it to us. He chose to make it known to his saints how, how great the riches of the glory of the mystery is. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And God chose, importantly here in this passage and in this context of who Paul is writing to, to understand that God chose to send this message even to the Gentiles through people like Paul. And the Jews were confused by this. They were, they were confused by this. They were probably a bit repulsed by this, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, God, God predicted the coming of the Messiah, and the Jews were expecting him. But as one commentator put it, the idea that he would actually live in his redeemed church made up of mostly Gentiles was not revealed. Right? They had no idea this was going to be a truth, that the message would go to Gentiles, and in fact, mostly Gentiles would be making up the church. This is a mystery indeed. Um, and you, as you think about how the Jews felt about Gentiles, what, how did they feel about Gentiles? Yeah, they were dogs, right? Pagans, they're unclean. Uh, they did not care for the Gentiles. Didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. So, if God chose to make this mystery known to the saints... And the Jewish leaders did not accept this message of Christ. What does that reveal about them? What does that reveal about the Jewish leaders? They didn't have the Spirit, right? They were not saints. They were not children of God. Because that's who God revealed this to, and we know that they didn't accept this message. Okay? For example, the, the Scriptures make, they make this clear. In fact, Jesus made this clear about the religious leaders of the time. In John 10, 25 and 26, he says, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And earlier, Jesus told the religious leaders this same thing in another way, saying, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus identified them with their own father, and it was not God, right? This mystery is revealed to the Colossians. So we talk about how this wasn't revealed to those religious leaders. 
but it's certainly revealed to the Colossians. They are mostly Gentiles in this church, but clearly they must be children of God since they received this message and understood it. They believed unto salvation. What is the significance of this statement that Paul makes here, Christ in you? What is the significance of that? Okay, not just an external God or something on the outside. He's personal. He resides within us. Okay. It is significant. We need to understand that as significant as Christians. Romans 8, 9 and 10 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It is significant, right? Because without Christ being in you, you do not belong to him. So this mystery revealed, Christ in you, is very significant. We need to understand that. Look how Paul explains this same mystery. Turn to Ephesians 3, if you would. Just a few pages backwards. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. And look at how um, Paul explains the same mystery in this letter to the Ephesians, who are also mostly Gentiles. Verses 1 through 6, Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read when you read this, you can perceive my or sorry, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And why is that so significant that this mystery, would, mystery is revealed to the Gentiles and that Gentiles are fellow heirs? Why is that significant to us? Because we're Gentiles, right? Thank God that this was revealed to us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Paul again here referred to this stewardship right, of God's grace and said that it was given to him specifically for the Gentiles. And he says exactly what that mystery is, even in clearer terms than our Colossians passage. Right? He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You cannot get clearer about the inclusion of Gentiles in the plan of salvation. And what did that Ephesians passage then tell us about how Paul came to know this mystery himself by revelation, right? It was made known to him by revelation, right from Jesus himself. And Paul talks about it when he recounts his testimony of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Um, and we, we read about that last week. Later in Acts, Paul is arrested in Acts 22, and he's standing before all the people and, and spoke to them about about that same event, about Ananias giving him his sight back and what Ananias told him. And in that passage in Acts 22, Paul said these were the words of Ananias on that day. And he said, 
The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So he's there recounting these words of Ananias on that day that Christ appeared to him, uh, at that, or that, on that time when Ananias came and opened his eyes again. It was, it was a, couple day, a few days after that. Um, also, he went on to tell them about Jesus coming to him in a trance and told him to leave Jerusalem because the Jews would not accept his message. As, as he's being sent out to the Gentiles, the Jews would not accept his message. And Paul said in Acts twenty two twenty one, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul had a clear message from Christ. There was no confusion about who he is to take this gospel message to. Jesus made it very clear to him, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And then Paul was in custody before King Agrippa. He told him about uh, the commission Jesus gave him also in um, Acts 26. If you want to turn there, Acts 26, verses 15 through 18. And, and remember, this is, again, Paul telling this story of his own conversion. This is how he recounts it here, starting in verse 15. He's, he starts with his response to Jesus' words to him, why are you persecuting me, okay? Uh, or to Jesus getting his, his attention. He says in verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your uh, people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus said he was appointing Paul as a servant, Saul at the time, as a servant and witness, uh, sending them out to open the eyes of the Gentiles to deliver them from darkness for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and these are examples that we've just looked at. These are examples of that revelation of Jesus to, to Paul uh, that he received right from Christ. And now let's look at one more portion of verse 27, and that is his statement about the hope of glory. Okay, he said, the mystery was Christ in you, the hope of glory. If an unbeliever asked you, or maybe even a believer, asked you what the hope of glory was, what would you say? What is the hope of glory? Eternal life. What, what else might you say about that? How might you explain that to someone? Maybe even thinking about that word hope. That's right, and there's hope in that, right? And that's, that's the point of that, right? Right, and, and for Christians, that hope, what was that? That's right, and for Christians, that hope is not, again, a, well, I wish this will happen, or I, 
I hope this will happen. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. It's, it's an eager expectation of what is to come. It is going to come, right? And this is as opposed to this life, it is the promise of the return of Christ to gather His church into eternal life, into His presence in a glorified body with no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, and only praising God forever. Uh, that is hope, and we have that hope as Christians. So that's, that's the hope of glory. It's, do we have hope right now in our lives every day? Yes, as Christians we do because we're looking to a better home. We're waiting for our Savior. But we also have hope in eternity, right? We have that glory to look forward to in eternity. And these should be things that we, we think about as believers and, and, and remembering that this is not our home here. Though we live here now, sometimes it's hard to forget or hard to remember maybe that we have this future hope because of this life and the difficulties of this life, but we need to really consider and remember the promises of God for His people, and it is not that we're going to remain here. What's that? Every promise in the book is mine, that's right. This kind of thinking, the thinking about Christ in you, the hope of glory and what that means that contributes to why Paul is able to say things like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He can look at this life, he can look at his own sufferings and say that because of the hope of glory, because of Christ in him. So we've looked at Paul's suffering for the church. Um, we've looked at Paul's mystery message. And now we'll look at the last point I wanted to look at, uh, which is... Paul's goal for maturity. Okay, this is found in the last two verses of chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, where we see that his goal is for the maturity of believers, and we see how he goes about to accomplish that goal. He explains how he accomplishes that goal. And this is dealing with the warning and teaching and maturity of Christians in this last passage and the proclamation of those things. So Paul has been telling them that his suffering is a part of this stewardship Christ has given him, right, for the church to reveal the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations regarding the fact that um, Gentiles are included in this revelation and the mystery being Christ in you, the hope of glory. What are the things Paul has done, though, to reveal the mystery to the Colossians, let's say, or really to all the people that he was sent to by Christ? This is what he did everywhere. It was, he did this by proclamation and by warning and by teaching. These are the means uh, and the maturity is the goal. Right? These, these are the things he did to bring about maturity uh, in believers. Uh, in addition to these things, we'll also find that he explains something that is critical to success in these matters, and that is um, what he explains is the source of, of his strength to accomplish it all. We can't leave that out. There is a source of strength that Paul uh, relies upon for accomplishing the will of God uh, that God has given to him. And it's the same source of strength that you and I rely upon. So Colossians 1, 28 and 29, let's look at those last two verses. Him we proclaim, Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
Okay, so let's look at the means. In regards to Paul's stewardship of suffering and uh, mystery revealing, let's look uh, first at the means by which he did this. Three things, proclamation, warning, and teaching. Okay, proclamation. He says, him we proclaim. And of course, him is referring to Christ. And that Greek word that he used there really has a longer definition than just the word proclaim. It really means to this is a, in a public sense, to declare the completed truth or happening of something. And that is, of course, Christ and His work on the cross. Right? And this is a public declaration. It is a proclamation. It's, this is open. It's out in the open. It's not hidden. It's not wavering or weak, but the bold proclamation of an absolute fact. And that is that all are sinners, and Christ suffered and died as the propitiation for sin and rose again. This is the proclamation of the gospel message. People will believe it or they won't. Okay, but, but that has no bearing on the proclamation itself, does it? For someone not to believe it is true doesn't make it not true. Right? This is a, an absolute truth. High school and college Students for many years now have been indoctrinated into what is called postmodernism. You know, they may not call it that, but that's what they're doing. All truth is relative, right? Two things that completely contradict each other can be true in this kind of mindset. God exists and God doesn't exist. Both are true. That's not true. It can't be. Any common sense person knows that, that both of those things cannot be true. Either God exists or he doesn't. But the students are taught that God can exist if someone thinks he does. God doesn't exist because we think he does. God exists. We believe it or we don't. Um, each person in this kind of thinking, each person is right. Okay? So, so therefore, nobody can ever tell somebody they're wrong about anything. That's, that's the kind of society we have now. And we can see where that leads. Right? We can see where that kind of what that kind of thinking brings about. There's no, there's no truth. There's no foundation of anything. If, if anything goes, then what is there to rely upon? So, so Paul's proclamation is of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is the gospel proclamation. What people believe about that proclamation doesn't make it true or not. It is just true. So what is the question? And for everyone who hears the message, what is the question? that they have to ask themselves. Do I believe what it says? Is it true? That's the, that's the question. When the gospel is proclaimed, whether it's in a large group of people or from one Christian to one unbeliever, the question they must ask themselves is, is it true? Is what they're telling me true? If people could at least agree that it's either true or not true, then what are they left with? No, if, if we can all agree, right, that there's not just no truth, but if we can agree that's either true or not true, then we're left with a decision, a decision, right? So they can ask the question, is it true? And then what has to follow that is either belief or rejection of that truth. If people are... Uh, taught and allowed to believe that you can have your own truth that contradicts someone else's truth, yet they're both true, 
what are we left with? No truth at all, right? Confusion. No direction. This is why suicide rates are so high among young people these days. There's no, they're told there's no truth. What, what hope is there in that? There's nothing. You can understand why without Christ, young people have no hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory, do you believe it or not? If someone asks, why should I believe that? Well, then you get to the next tool in the toolbox that Paul used. Warning, okay, warning or admonition. Uh, this is sort of the negative way in which Paul proclaimed. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone. Nobody's left out of the proclamation unless they're out of earshot of it. The proclamation is followed by warning to everyone. The Greek word used there is uh, nuthateo, to put in mind or lay it to mind. In this context, it's speaking about the encouraging counsel in view of sin and coming punishment. It's not a warning that is a rejection of someone or a putting down of someone. It is uh, a warning in love for that person that they would, and you're encouraging them to believe the warning and come to faith and belief in the truth. Um, this word, nutheteo, is why biblical counseling used to be called nuthetic counseling. Right? It's, it's all about Christians counseling other Christians by admonishing them with the word of God and not with psychology or philosophy, but with the truth of the word of God. So if you had to put into one sentence what the warning or admonishment was that Paul would give, what would you say? Whether it's to the Colossians or anywhere else he went, what would the warning be? He's, he's, him we proclaim, warning everyone. What's the warning? God's wrath, right? right? God's judgment, God's wrath on sin, his judgment that is coming, and if you reject the proclamation of the gospel as false, you, you believe that is false, then you will not escape eternal judgment. There's, that is warning. It's a strong warning. What was that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right, right. Yeah, without, without that, then that warning still rests on you. You still have the wrath of God resting on you if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior. In Deuteronomy eight nineteen, it says, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Okay, this is it's talking about idolatry, and, and idolatry exists today, everywhere. In Luke 12, 5, Jesus said, But I will warn you whom, you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about God. The writer of Hebrews says, Those who go on sinning have a fearful expectation of judgment. That's the, what the warning is getting after. That's the, the warning that goes out there. And again, it's not just to threaten people, right, with, with nothing to follow that. Uh, there's more to the gospel than, than warning. But can you truly give a true proclamation of the gospel without giving a warning or admonishment? Is, is there any way to give a proclamation of the gospel without a warning? No, there, there really isn't. Because 
people need to know what they need salvation from, right? If you just say, come to Jesus and get saved, why? I'm doing just fine. I got plenty of money, uh, got everything I need. What do I need salvation from? People need the warning. The warning is, is an absolutely essential part of the gospel message. So again, um, the warning is, is kind of negative. It's kind of a negative point, but it's a necessary means that Paul used in the proclamation. And now let's look at the sort of the positive means that Paul used in his proclamation, that is teaching. Right? Teaching refers here to uh, the imparting of truth, the imparting of positive truth. And this is how the Word of God is passed from one person to another. It's how mature believers help immature believers to uh, increase in maturity. And here he says it's what Paul has done to reach, to reach the goal for Christians. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And this idea of teaching is an absolute requirement. If we're talking about the church, it's an absolute requirement for pastors and elders. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Right, but able to teach doesn't just mean that someone's a good speaker. Okay? They must be able to rightly teach the Word of God. Someone can be an extremely good and charismatic communicator that everyone's just on the edge of their seat listening to this person while com- communicating complete garbage and calling it truth. Right? It's not about someone's ability to be a communicator that everyone will sit and listen to. Someone uh, can be boring and yet rightly and effectively teach the truth of the Word of God. Not that being boring is a good thing, but it's not about, it's not about how exciting a person is. And we all know, we listen to different pastors and speakers, and, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of them. What's that? That's right. I've listened to some people that I would consider pretty boring, but I've learned a lot from, like, they, have, they are really teaching truth. And then I've listened to some other people that are very charismatic. You can see why people would be like drawn to them, but they're not teaching what's true. So it's the message. It's what's being taught that's, what, that's what's important. And again, I'm not saying that someone should be okay with being boring, as I'm boring you here. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> teaching the Word of God rightly is also something that not just uh, pastors and elders need to be thinking about, but something that all Christians are supposed to do in the sense of counseling one another with the Word of God and, and correcting each other with the Word of God. And later in chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that's something for all of us to to desire, right, to be able to rightly um, teach someone if someone's mistaken in their understanding of Scripture, we can we can teach that. Um, this is, but if you're talking about the context of the church and who is to who is responsible for the teaching of the gathered congregation, then we're talking about those pastors, elders uh, that need to be qualified, and one of those qualifications is able to teach. Um, look at what James says elsewhere about. These da- the dangers of teaching, even. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers. 
my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And there's a warning there. I mean, these days, anybody and everybody is claiming to be a teacher and getting on the internet and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't think they read this verse, or if they have, they think it means something else or it doesn't apply to them. But uh, it's a sober-minded thing to think about teaching the Word of God and to handle the Word of God. And the church should be, we should be encouraging growth in every Christian, right, with the goal in mind that they can counsel other Christians from the Word of God based on their level of maturity. Uh, I've learned things from people more mature than me in their faith and from people less mature than me in, in, in their faith. Um, but, as, of course, the, the, in general, as we grow and mature in Christ and grow and mature in our knowledge of the Word, we are more likely able to help someone who is less mature than we are. And that is the goal as Christians, to grow. Um, there's even a danger in putting someone forward as an elder uh, or teacher too soon. Timothy, Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 3.6. He must not be a recent convert, convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Right? So it's not a good idea that someone's a new believer to say, all right, be our pastor, right? It, it takes, people need to mature. We need to grow. So we have Paul's proclamation by the use of the negative means of warning, and I don't mean negative in the sense of he shouldn't have done it, right? It's just kind of, that's the unpleasant side of this proclamation, this warning or admonishment toward everyone. And the positive means we looked at is the teaching or imparting what is true to everyone, and then we move on to his stated goal, as we talked about at the beginning. There's a goal, and the goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. He, he clearly stated in verse 28 that his goal in doing what he was doing was that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I've skipped a portion of the verse dealing with wisdom because I want to I be able to come back to that um, when we're looking at verse 29. So, so Paul goes, Paul's goal is that Christians would be mature in Christ. If, if you could ask, if you could poll all professing Christians in our country, right, the whole country, about what they think being a Christian is all about, what do you think people would say? What do you think some of the things people would say is? Being good, okay. What else? Follow the commandments, okay. Do good things. Go to church. What was that? To be a believer, okay. To believe the message. Right, to read his word, right? What was that? Oh, tithe? People, yeah, people might say that. Okay, so there's a, a big list. And what's not on that list is maturing as Christians, right? Now, some of the things mentioned on that list are what we use to, to mature, right? Being in the word, reading the Bible. Uh, but it's not usually something that's on people's minds as what does it mean to be a Christian? What is important as a Christian. It doesn't usually, it's not usually the first thing we think of, um, but that is the goal. Um, striving for maturity in the Word of God and Christian living um, may be one of the answers, but it's usually farther down on the list. But all we have to do as Christians is read the Scriptures, and, and the pages of the Word of God will tell us what the goal is. 
And Paul has stated a portion of it here, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, And it's not the only place where we see that teaching. We've already seen this in chapter 1 of this letter. In verses 9 and 10, he said, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is talking about maturing. It's talking about maturing over time. Okay, we, don't, we don't have this instant maturity. I mean, I don't think anybody here would claim they became a Christian and all of a sudden you were instantly mature in, in your understanding of the Bible. Um, look over at Ephesians with me. Again, back, back to the left. Ephesians 4, in verses 11 through 13, It says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, so maturity is the goal. And again, this is a maturing over time. God gave these to help the church grow and mature through teaching. But it is the goal. And most Bible translations actually use the word perfect here. Maybe some of yours have that. Instead of mature, um, some also use the word complete. And the word there, the Greek word that Paul used there, it, it means perfect in the sense that something is brought to its end or finished. Okay, hence mature or complete. When we see the word perfect in Scripture, sometimes it means sinless perfection, such as Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, that's talking about God's standard uh, for righteousness. It's perfection. Sometimes it means complete or mature, like in James 1.4, which says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, that's the idea there. Building to perfection or completeness or maturity is the goal of the Christian life. And that's the goal that Paul is after here with the Colossians. The product of reaching that goal, the product of reaching the goal of maturity is to be like Christ, right? To be like Christ. But for the Christian, it is a process that will take our entire lives. As the Apostle John indicates, John, uh, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we uh, will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And the goal is is to present, be presented to Christ when he returns, and we will then be made um, complete. We will then be uh, perfect in him. None of us are yet there. We've not reached it. Paul talked about that in Philippians. Um, but in the meantime, God himself is making us mature through teaching, admonishing, through trials, through persecutions, um, hardships, calamities, as Paul called them, and all sorts of things he sees fit to bring into our lives. And Paul's goal is never to just convert people to Christianity, is it? It's not just 
convert someone and then take off and you never have anything to do with them again. I mean, that's what's going on here. These people are believers. They came to faith in Christ. Why is Paul wasting his time writing them a letter? They're already saved. Well, his goal is to protect them from false teaching. His goal is that they would mature in the truth of God. Now we need to go back to what this verse said about wisdom because it is vital to all that Paul is telling the church. He said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I left that out briefly, but we cannot leave it out, right? The warning, the teaching are, are always to be done with all wisdom. You see numerous places in his letters where Paul emphasizes the idea of wisdom. Not just that we would seek it, though we should. Not that we can find it just anywhere, but that is to be, it's something that's to be prayed about um, as something we can have and prayed for others to have, but we find it in the Word of God. That's where we find wisdom, and it is something that is not, even when you read the Word of God, it's not just something you figure out. The Holy Spirit teaches you. The Holy Spirit enlightens you. He illuminates the Word of God to you. What are, I wanted to ask, what are some scriptures that you can think of that have benefited you in regard to their teaching about wisdom? Is there any that you can think about off the top of your head? James. James 1.5, right? I have that on my list. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have, a, have good understanding, and His praise endures forever. Wisdom is very important, and we find it in the Word of God. With all wisdom means uh, that what is admonished and taught is the Word of God. It's all about biblical discernment and application to every point of life. Right? This is not wisdom according to my own thoughts. Absolutely. The songs Yeah. The songs that we sing. Songs are one of those things. Music is something that is a very powerful yeah, a very powerful tool or thing that we have that God has given us to, uh, and, and if we apply the truth of the Word of God to music and we sing that to one another, we, can, we teach each other the truth of God, we remind each other the truth of God through song. It is a, it's a wonderful thing, and, and so what we sing should be true according to the Word of God. Um, right? Yeah. Right. Is there anything wrong with emotion? No, there's not. I mean, God gave us emotion. We, we have different emotions, but we shouldn't be having music and singing to conjure up emotions. It's the truth of God proclaimed that should bring about a response of emotion. 
of gratitude, maybe even tears. Sometimes that emotion is, is conviction as we hear the truth sung. So, so we shouldn't try to manipulate emotion. We should be singing the Word of God, and if, if emotion follows that, then that's great. I mean, I often find myself in tears. Yeah. So the teaching that Christians give and receive should always be saturated with, with God's words, which is wisdom. And that's what Paul did when he taught and what he meant here when he's talking about wisdom. And so the last thing, finally, uh, verse 29, we'll deal with the source of strength. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this. What is he talking about? Meaning all the suffering, all the proclamation, the warning, the admonishing, the wisdom, um, all of it with the goal of being presented mature in Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says for this, for all of that. It is for all of that that Paul says he toils. He, you might have the words labor in your Bible there. He doesn't just toil or labor. Uh, the Greek word there means, has a different meaning. Uh, bigger meaning, which is to labor until you're exhausted, right? We, it's not just, whew, I'm a little tired. This is, this is exhaustion, right? Um, we have um, here in this passage an example that the Christian life is a life of labor to the point of exhaustion sometimes. Paul is exhausting himself, but at the same time, he's not exhausted. Why? Because of the source of strength. He's not relying on his own strength. Uh, it's by, because of what is em, empowering him. He also says he's struggling or striving with all of his energy. He says his. He doesn't say with all of my energy. He says his. Who's he talking about? Whose energy? God, right? The Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God. And that word there that he uses is... Um, where we get our word agonize from, this, where we have the word struggle and striving. It's this word um, that we get the word agonize from. It has the idea of striving hard, extremely hard. And Paul uses a lot of pictures of the Christian life, and one of them is like that of a, an athletic event, like a race, right? Um, to succeed in a race, a person has to exert themselves. They have to, if you want to be the one that is victorious, you, you have to put out all the effort that you possibly can. And he's comparing the Christian life to that kind of effort, agonizing or striving. There are other analogies that Paul uses for describing the Christian life, uh, describing the Christian and the life uh, of a Christian. What are some of the other examples of how he describes that? We talked before about the ways the Bible describes the church. How about how the Word of God has also described Christians and their life. A race, what else? A fight, okay? What was that? Okay, war, like a battle, yeah. Um, the Scripture talks about us being good soldiers. Um, Paul talks about himself as a, a drink offering being poured out. Uh, we hear references to um, being a boxer. Um, again, an athlete, yeah, all, 
this idea of persevering is all mixed in with that. Uh, even a hardworking farmer. Okay? None of that is like relaxing, is it? None of that is kicking back somewhere uh, out in Florida. I don't know why I said Florida. That just seems where everybody goes when they want to relax. But <laughs> it's warm there, that's why. <laughs> right? He says he's doing all of this with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. With all his energy, not Paul's, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And Paul wrote about that in Philippians 2.13. He said, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? What kind of encouragement should we get from that as Christians? Knowing that what God has called us to is not something we do in our own strength. What, how, why is that encouraging? He's got our back. Yeah, he'll give us the strength. How, is it easy for us to forget this? I think it is. I think it's easy to forget because we're, we're living it, right? Hardships come, you know, um, even persecutions come, even in our area, not persecutions like we see in foreign countries, maybe, but there are conflicts because of our faith in Christ that we struggle with. There are afflictions that we deal with, and it can be hard to remember that we don't, have, we don't go through those things in our own strength as Christians. Or you have the Holy Spirit. He strengthens us for everything. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? He's, it can sound like he's boasting there, but he's really not boasting in himself. He's boasting in Christ. He's boasting in the one who empowers him. And so next time we'll be doing, starting in chapter 2, okay? and there will be a little of this uh, to continue he, as he talks more about his struggle. But, so we'll be in chapter 2 next time. Um, not next week. Next week we will not have Wednesday night services um, due to the Thanksgiving holiday. So don't show up next week or you'll be all alone. Um, and, but the week after, we'll be back uh, to start in chapter 2. Okay, let's close in prayer tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you uh, for these words that we've heard tonight from your word that, that should encourage us and strengthen us as Christians. And most of all, Lord, that as Christians, the biggest, the most important mystery of all has been revealed to us. And that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. What an amazing gift. We thank you, Father, that that is uh, something that you have granted to, to your children, Lord, to the church. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would always be grateful for that, that it would motivate in us a desire to grow and mature in our faith, to live a life worthy of the gospel, all for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.